The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The reading of Scripture today is taken from the fifth chapter of Mark. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Brandy. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Scott, and along with Todd, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to open up the Scriptures uh, this morning with you. Uh, we've been in a series that brings us now to an encounter with Jesus Christ uh, had by a man who uh, we're calling tormented, oppressed, uh, another word that, that might be used is haunted haunted by invisible powers. And uh, if you were here in October, you may remember a similar message or a similar passage where Jesus has an encounter with Satan, the devil. And today we're going to talk about an encounter that Jesus has with several of Satan's servants called demons. Now, C.S. Lewis says that there are two errors that people can make Uh, with respect to demons or fallen angels. One error that we can make is to overly fixate on them, uh, and the other error is to believe that they don't exist, to assume that they don't exist. And this second strategy 
uh, of the demons to, to get us to think that they don't exist, to get us to ignore them, is a very intelligent strategy, and uh, it's, it's a very effective way, actually, for uh, evil to kill us slowly, uh, a lot like uh, artery plaque or uh, cancer cells or a gas leak in the home uh, while everybody sleeps at night. Uh, the demons are silent killers, silent killers. You don't recognize they're there, and that's their advantage over you is that you don't recognize that they're there. Uh, ever since the Enlightenment, popular opinion, especially in the Western world, this isn't so much the case uh, in more impoverished areas of the world, but in the Western hemisphere, since the Enlightenment, popular opinion is this. The material world is the only thing that exists. Spiritual world, invisible realities, God, Satan, angels, demons, figment of people's imaginations, primitive ideas, uh, that's for superstitious people who don't know how to deal with the real world. Okay, so that's prevailing post-enlightenment thought in the Western world. And yet, Jesus Christ says, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we recognize it or not, this is a world, the invisible world, that exists. Every now and then, the demons will slip, and they will show themselves when they don't intend to. Now, this is actually how my wife, or part of how my wife became a Christian. My wife, when she was in high school, was in a season where she was being um, challenged or encouraged to consider spiritual matters uh, through a high school ministry called Young Life. And some adults who were volunteers and staff members with this group called Young Life and she wrestled because she's a very inquisitive, very thoughtful person, and uh, her main struggle was, how do I know that this world of God and angels and, and so on exists? How can I be sure? I mean, I don't know if I want to give my life to something that I can't see with my eyes, touch with my hands, and so on. And then the, 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 the demons showed themselves. She was at a party one night, and she was invited to come down in the basement where a group of, of uh, other teenagers were around a table uh, around this thing called a Ouija board. And they were summoning the spirits. And you think, oh, you know, child's play. Didn't Hasbro make that along with their other, you know, toy games? Well, here's what happened around the Ouija board. The Ouija board started spelling out things about my wife's life and about her experience and background that nobody in that room had any clue about or would have any reason to have any clue about in, in, in very, very specific terms. And as you might imagine, she started freaking out, and she ran over to the board and flipped it over, and everybody kind of freaks out. She leaves, she runs away, and becomes a Christian out of that experience. You might actually credit the demons for Patty Saul's being a Christian and a follower of Christ on some level. Because sometimes God will give the demons rope, just like He does to, to Satan in the book of Job, but only enough with which to hang themselves. And that's what happened with my wife. Sometimes, wanting to be invisible, wanting you to think they're not even there, they will show their hand. 
Revelation chapter 12 tells us that, that when Satan fell from heaven, one-third of all of the angels fell with him. And so the fallen angels, one-third of them, are demons. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about invisible realities of darkness that I'll, I'll unpack a little bit more in a minute. In Matthew 12, Jesus says that demons can actually inhabit people. People can be oppressed from the outside and possessed from the inside. Jesus ran around uh, to different towns and cities and villages casting demons out of tormented people. He sent His disciples out into the world to do the same. And here we've got a man who is possessed, it says, by a legion of demons. Now, legion was a military word. It was the largest uh, group of, of Roman soldiers making up 6,000 soldiers, 6,000. And so, presumably, he's got somewhere around 6,000 demons that he's possessed by and tormented by, and he runs toward Jesus, and as a direct byproduct of running toward Jesus, we find him at the end of the encounter fully clothed, in his right mind, and then he becomes an influencer. So, I want to unpack this man's story under three headings uh, in this order. First, demons are everywhere. Second, there's something even greater to fear than demons. And third, greater is he that is in us than the one who is in the world. So, first of all, demons are everywhere. And in, in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes, we do not wrestle merely with material flesh and blood. The, the, the world isn't just material. The universe isn't just what you can see, taste, smell, touch, and so on. We do not wrestle merely with material flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. If you are not convinced about demonic realities, then take it from a secular liberal. If the Bible isn't enough to convince you, take it from a secular liberal. Andrew Del Banco is a professor at Columbia University, one of the Ivies, uh, located in New York City. He wrote a book called The Death of Satan. Secular liberal wrote a book called The Death of Satan, and his thesis in this book is that to reject belief in a personal, transcendent, invisible evil is bad for society. It's bad for society. What leads him to this conclusion? One of the things that leads him to this conclusion is that he had relatives who died in the Holocaust. And Del Banco says that if there is no Satan, and if there are no demons, then human beings and human beings alone are on the hook for Holocaust evil. And if that's the case, then we are in a precarious, terrifying situation because if we're capable of this kind of evil, it also means we're incapable of stopping it. And that's what this text is showing us. There are powers outside of us that we cannot overcome. Verse 2, we're shown a man, it says, with an unclean spirit 
No one could bind him, not even with a chain. If you're old enough to remember the, 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 the shows uh, about the Incredible Hulk, it's like that. No one can bind him. No one can control him, not even with chains. No one had the strength to subdue him, it says. Now, this poor man is haunted by chaos, like tornadoes of the soul, 6,000 of them, perhaps. Tornadoes in his soul. He, he identifies himself as legion. There are, are multiple forces causing this man misery, isolation, self-destruction. He reminds us in some ways of, of Tolkien's, uh, you know, desperate, pathetic, enslaved character Gollum, doesn't he? But in this man, you don't just have a, a, a tormented, tortured, afflicted, and inflicted man. You have in him a microcosm of the whole world. Because Romans chapter 8 tells us, and experience demonstrates as well, that all of creation groans, that every person, every place, and everything is subject to suffering, decay, turmoil, tornadoes. Creation groans in many ways. Climate change, violence, abuse, slavery, inequality, poverty, racism, greed, religious persecution, government corruption. Most would agree that the vast majority of these problems are increasing, not decreasing, in spite of our best efforts. The world has 6,000 or more, a legion or more problems that we have no strength to fix. 1985, there was a collaboration uh, by several artists led by Michael Jackson. It's a wonderful song. Went platinum, you may remember it. We are the world. Now, that song and that We Are the World movement was instituted as an effort to, 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 to rally together the collective human spirit to conquer the world's problems together. Here are some of the lyrics. When you're down and out, there seems no hope at all. But if you just believe there's no way we can fall, change can only come when we stand together as one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day. So let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true. We'll make a better day, just you and me. Nineteen years later, just you and me are still living among the tombs tormented. We've tried it all, politics, philosophy, education, sociology, science, therapy, and we have yet to find an ultimate fix, an ultimate solution to the violent powers that subdue us. What does that mean we should stop counseling? 
We should stop engaging with politics and stop getting an education. No, it doesn't mean that because Christianity is a fighting religion, right? We, we see things wrong in the world and we fight. But the difficulty is we're not going to win. And yet we are, but yet we're not. You know, I was having a conversation with a man the other day who had a double bypass uh, surgery, and uh, he was a ticking time bomb. They got it just in the nick of time, and, and he wakes up, and he looks at his doctor, at, at the surgeon, and says, thank you so much. You've saved my life. And the surgeon looks back at him and says, I did not save your life. I've prolonged your life, but I did not save it. There is no saving your life. We're saving our own lives? Not a chance. It's true, we'll make a better world just you and me? Not a chance. There are powers outside of us. There are also powers inside of us that we cannot control. We can't even fix ourselves. This man is perhaps at the most powerful place that he's ever been in his life. He can break chains. And yet, as one of the commentaries said, the more powerful he becomes, the more it weakens him. Because he uses his power in such a way that, that, that leads to self-mutilation. It says he's cutting himself. You know, Jesus asked him, what is your name? He answers, my name is Legion, for we are many. You know, Eugene Peterson's translation, the message, uh, is a bit more colorful. In that translation, the man says, my name is Mob. I am a rioting mob. Speaking of Eugene Peterson and riots, it was actually riots that first motivated Peterson to come up with this pedestrian translation of the Bible in the message. Because there were riots going on in his home city of Baltimore around racial tension. And looking back on that season, this was shortly before his death, Peterson said about the Baltimore race riots, people were worried about what was happening in the city. I was worried about what was happening in people. Because these kinds of things don't happen in the city until they happen in people first. The hashtag movements are not fixing any of our problems. They're, they're giving an occasion to express our outrage, to call out what's wrong, and so on, but they're not fixing things. We have no power. We're not saving our lives. We will not make a better world just you and me. It says the man lived among the tombs. This is a description of every human being and the way that we come into the world. As for you, Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead men walking. You lived among the tombs. You were dead but God. There's the answer. There's the fix. There's the, there's the solution. But God made you alive. It's also the solution given in Romans 8. Creation groans. We groan with creation. Everything is a train wreck, but God is coming back. He's going to renew it all. He, he, he's going to fix it all, world without end. But you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins until God made you alive. 
You know, in Matthew chapter 17, a man comes to Jesus and says, my son is tormented by demons, and your disciples couldn't help. And, the, and he, you know, he speaks a word, just like he does to this man. The, the young boy is healed and in his right mind, and, and, and the disciples say to Jesus, why couldn't we do that? And he said, because you have little faith. But here's the thing. He goes on to teach about faith and mustard seeds, and he says, all you need is a little faith. So, is Jesus contradicting himself? Because the mustard seed is the smallest known seed. All you need is a little tiny faith. The reason why you couldn't do this is because you had a little tiny faith. Here's, where, here's what he's saying. The little tiny thing is not my description of your faith. The little tiny thing is my description of the object of your faith, which is your own resources. Just you and me will make a better world. If you have a little tiny faith in me, it'll move mountains. It'll shake the earth. It'll call people out of tombs. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's just another way of saying the only way that you and I will ever get control is to relinquish it and to entrust it into His hands. Which leads me to the second thought, and that is this, that there is something even greater to fear than demons. There are demons all around us, by the way. There are de- you better believe there are demons in this very room. Hello, demons. We know you're here. And we're not scared of you. You can do nothing to us. Because greater is he that's in us than the one who's in the world. But we'll get there in a minute. There is something greater than demons to fear, which is also in this room, self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. You're the townspeople. The townspeople in this text are more at risk than the demon-tortured man. Why is that the case? Because he sees the severity of his situation. They don't see the severity of theirs. They have been just been witnesses of one of the most, one of history's most miraculous healing moments. This same person, Jesus Christ, who only shortly before had spoken to the weather, had spoken to a hurricane like a child and said, peace, be still, be still. And the the wind and the waves obey him, and and, and then he calms a storm inside a haunted man. And their response, the townspeople's response to Jesus, please leave, please go away. What's happening here? Here's what's happening. Where did Jesus send the demons? Out of the man and into the pigs. And once they were sent into the pigs, the pigs were sent into the water. Boom, there goes our economy. It's like 2008 when the stock market tanked. This was like 2008 for them because the pigs, that was their livelihood in the region of the Gerasenes. That's how they made their money. That's their economy. 
And it's as if the, the townspeople are saying, Jesus, we really appreciate the stability that you've brought to our, our world here. We really appreciate the way you've kind of settled things down a little bit. But what we wanted, just to be clear, Jesus, was for you to fix him, not us. And if you're going to take our pigs, if, if, if drawing near to you and following you includes you taking our pigs from us or the risk of you taking our pigs from us, please leave. Please leave. So in that scenario, after what's just happened, after what they've just witnessed, who's more insane? Is it the man tormented by 6,000 demons? Or is it the businessmen who, after witnessing one of the greatest miracles in all of their history, looking at this incredible hulk of a man, now no longer green, now clothed, now in his right mind. And then they discover that they might have to let go of their pigs in order for Jesus to fix the anxiety in their world. They might have to let go of their pigs. We'll go with the pigs. It's just the rich ruler episode recycled. Please leave our region. You know, Kenneth Clark uh, was the former director of the National Gallery in Britain, and he wrote this autobiography about an experience, a spiritual experience that he had in San Lorenzo. Here's an excerpt from that. My spiritual experience took place in the church but it did not seem to be connected to the beauty of the architecture. I can only say that for a few minutes, my whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything, anything I'd known before. This state of mind, wonderful though it was, posed an awkward problem in terms of action. My life was far from blameless. I would have to reform. My family would think I was going mad, for I was in every way unworthy of receiving such a flood of grace. Gradually, the effect wore off, and I made no effort to retain it. I think I was right. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. But that I had felt the finger of God, I am quite sure... And although the memory of this experience has faded, it still helps me to understand the joys of the saints. So close, and yet so far, tasting the heavenly gift, but the pigs. Demons lie to us. They tell us if we, if we run toward the light the light will hurt us by taking away from us potentially things that we cherish. The light will wreck your livelihood, the demons say. But here's the truth. The light will wreck your livelihood, but there's more, than, more to it than that. See, C.S. Lewis says that, that, that most of us, we, we, we just want Jesus to come in and patch up the roof on our cottages. But what Jesus wants to do is demolish the cottage. The demons stop the narratives right there. But God continues the narrative. He wants to demolish your cottage and turn it into a castle. 
Demons don't want you to hear that last part. They only want you to hear the first part. And so they lie to you by giving you incomplete information, by masquerading as angels of light, but not giving you the full story of what the light has told, come to tell you and show you and demonstrate and be for you. The townspeople clung to their pigs. Kenneth Clark stung, clung to his status quo. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. Any of you there today? Too deeply embedded in fill in the blank to change course? Wrong. Wrong. Do you want a cottage or do you want a castle? This is an invitation for us to take inventory as well. In what am I, Scott Sauls, so deeply embedded that I cannot fathom Jesus exercising it out of my system for fear of losing it? What would tempt me to opt for pigs over God? Is it my money fixation? You know, Patty said, we're talking so much about money in this series on encounters with Christ. I'm like, I know, I didn't expect that, but it's everywhere. It seems like every encounter, at least every two out of every three, is bringing up money. He does it again here. I guess I've got to talk about it. Why? Because when we think we have money, and when we think we've mastered the world because we have money, it's mastered us. It has us. We don't have it. It has us. And that's what's happening here. But it, it could be a fixation on something else. It could be a fixation on your sexuality, and control over your sexuality, control over your career, control over food, health. It could be anything. Because idolatry is when, 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 when we take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing. Because that's really what demons want to do. They don't care if you focus on them. They just want you to focus away from Jesus towards something else. If you focus away from Jesus and fixate on something else, they've got you. No matter what it is. It's all there in Romans 1. You can read it there. But here's the, here's the punchline. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. First John chapter 4 says that. Greater is he that's in you, Jesus Christ, than he that's in the world, Satan, demons. If you are tormented in some way, if you have come to the realization, or maybe you're on the cusp of coming to the realization that, that things are not working, we're not going to make a better way, just you and me. Control is not the answer. Christ is the answer. If you feel like you are living among the tombs, isolated, injured, hurting, haunted, lonely, out of control. Jesus' word to this man is also his word for you. Go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Friends? Go home to what friends? There's a subtle message in there. At least this is the way I read it. Go home to the church. You'll have friends there. Because the church is the one place on earth that serves, among other things, as a haven for losers who are certifiably insane. And that is a great comfort to people who have suffered mental illness like yours truly.
Is it a great comfort to you? It's a great comfort to me. There's no other place on earth where a man like this will belong. But when he, when he comes home to his friends, he doesn't just receive belonging. He becomes a hero. Go, Jesus says now, to the Decapolis. You know what that means in Greek? Deca, ten. Polis, cities. Go into ten cities. I want you now to be an influencer. See, I'm not just here to coddle you. I'm here to send you. But before I send you, before I say go for me, I'm telling you, come to me. And you, when you come to me, you're going to find a friend and you're going to find many friends. Anyone can get in on this. Anyone can get in on this. Let's pray together. Lord, the way that we can get in on this is by doing what the celebrated preacher Robert Murray McShane once said, for every one look we take at ourselves, for every one look we take at our situation, for every one look we take at the disrepair of the world in which we live, we take ten looks at Jesus. And when we take ten looks at Jesus, we start to hear the hymn playing in our ears. Come ye souls by sin afflicted. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Mercy flows through him alone. And when we look to you, Lord, what will we see? What will we see? We will see this when we look to you. When we look to you on the cross, when we look to you at the Lord's table, which we are about to approach, as one writer says, we will see Jesus naked, isolated, outside the town, among the tombs, shouting incomprehensible things as he is torn apart on the cross, letting the enemy do its very worst to him, to take the full force of evil on himself, to let the others go free. Father, freedom is ours. Will you please, sir, take our puny, pathetic little cottages and the pigs that reside there and demolish them if you must and turn them into castles, we pray. Though the world with devils filled shall threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word from Jesus shall fell him, shall call him, cause him to come tumbling down, crashing and burning to the ground. We thank you, Jesus, that even though we cannot make a better world and a better day, you can, you have, and you will. Thanks be to God. Amen.